Hello and welcome to the History of Internal Communication podcast. My name is Joe Chick and I'm a research fellow at the Newcastle Business School at Northumbria University. In this podcast series, I will be exploring the history of an occupation that's often assumed to be a recent innovation, but which actually has its roots in the late 19th century. My work is part of a project funded by the Economic and Social Research Council called An Institutional History of Internal Communication in the United Kingdom. In today's episode, we will be hearing the insights and experiences of Mike Klein, an internal and social communication consultant at Changing the Terms. With a career that began in political PR in the US, Mike has worked in internal communication in many different countries and held posts with Shell, Cargill and Maersk Oil. Join us as we explore Mike's insights on measurement and leadership, offering valuable perspectives on the evolution and future trajectory of internal communication. Thank you, Mike, for joining us. And the first thing it's always interesting to ask our guests about is how did you first come into the field of internal communication? I ran political campaigns in the U.S. coming out of university. And then back in 96, I decided to go to business school. And I didn't really know what I was going to do at the end of business school. But what I did know was that I wanted to be able to commercialize the skills and the, the activities that I did as a political consultant and to the best extent possible, be able to do that in a more sustainable corporate context. And so I went to London Business School um, in 96. It was a two-year program. I did an internship at Eli Lilly, the big pharmaceutical company, and they asked me to do an audit of their external communication. And instinctively, I said, I'll only do it if you let me also audit your internal communication. And they agreed. And so I conducted this audit. And, you know, given the fact that this was a pharmaceutical company and in the UK, you can't do direct to consumer advertising. Your, their employees were, in fact, their external communication channel. And so by integrating the two, at least I made them more conscious of the value of internal communication and the extent to which employees are your key communication channel. And that's something that you know people only started talking about in the IC world about maybe eight, 10 years later. Um, but I actually really entered fully the IC world when I managed to get a job with a company called Smythe Door Lambert, which was one of the two or one of the three, you know, original strategic internal communication consultancies that were set up in London in the late nineties and, and which thrived into the early two thousands before by and large, they all collapsed um, because, you know, at the time they offered me an opportunity to really do the stuff that I like doing, but at the same time, really channeled towards, you know, fairly high visibility business, business projects. Obviously you've worked in the UK in the past and now working in Iceland, but also you've worked in quite a few different uh, in the U S and quite a few different European countries. So have you noticed differences in the way that internal comms works between the different countries? Well, there's a huge difference between, internal communication in the U.S. and internal communication anywhere else in the developed world. Okay. And that's because in the U.S., um, companies are responsible for a much larger suite of benefits 
um, than companies in, you know, particularly in Europe where those benefits are handled by the state. So the, the U.S. also has a, a, an issue with the nature of employment contracts. Most employee contracts do not have um, much protection for employees. So they have something called at-will employment. And what that really means is that employees in the U.S., you know, are often treated as property. You know, there's a much less um, consultative relationship between employees and the employers in the U.S. than there is in the U.K. or certainly in continental Europe. So there are huge structural differences, not unlike, say, the difference between rugby union and rugby league, where the game looks somewhat similar, but the rules are sufficiently different that it's effectively a different game. One particular area that you've been involved in, of course, for a long time is merger acquisitions since the late 90s. So have you noticed how the practice of internal communication during mergers and acquisitions has changed over time? That's one thing that really hasn't changed that much mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. the people who run mergers and acquisitions often see communication as a tick box or an afterthought. And yeah. that hasn't really changed because you very rarely have communication people on the inside of a merger and acquisition because most of those things are considered secret. And in a lot of organizations, communication people aren't trusted to the extent that they could be fully within the firewall. I actually still do a fair amount of merger and acquisition comms. And one of the reasons I do it is because I live outside the firewall. So I don't have, you know, even if I were to have privileged information, I wouldn't know anybody in the organization to share it with. So, you know, there's a certain, you know, there's a certain, because of the secrecy of MA before that happens, um, that hasn't changed much. And Consequently, companies that are going through M&A continue to have the same problems with integration and with, um, you know, even operational continuity, uh, because the context for the merger and the trajectory of the merger as it pertains to, you know, employees' sense of security um, becomes really unsettled. And very little thought had gone into or does go into how do you address this, you know, until it becomes a problem. People working internal comms in that situation, I guess, are particularly focused, obviously, on people and the kind of workplace culture. So how do you think uh, organizations can strike a balance between uh, their kind of financial and strategic goals that they're going for with the merger and the kind of human side of the merger? Well, I think that I think the first step is that you know, organizations that are going through merger and acquisition take a huge financial risk when they downplay the importance or um, treat communication and integration by extension as a tick box. Um, so, you know, when an internal comms person gets called in after the announcement is read, you know, is made, where they didn't even have any influence on the wording of the announcement, much less the backstory. Um, an internal communicator has to be able to really catch up and really get, you know, really ask the right questions very quickly 
to contain the damage to the maximum extent possible. Um, so an internal communicator, when faced with an MA situation that they get blindsided by, needs mm-hmm. to get off the floor very quickly and say, okay, what's the real story here? Uh, is this an acquisition? Is this a merger? Are you just simply buying the, um, the assets or do you really want to integrate the people? The sooner you can get the answer to that question, the better you can get the internal communications on track. Because the biggest, cha- the biggest mistake that organizations make in M&A is that they overpromise. And then when they overpromise and fail to deliver on those promises, not only do they trash the value of the, the acquisition, they trash the value of their own organizations in the process. When you uh, said that things haven't changed so much in that area, one thing I might have expected you to bring up was maybe remote working. I was wondering whether that uh, provides extra challenges with trying to integrate new teams when uh, there's not as much face-to-face work as there may have been in the past. Well, I mean, you know, the the concept of remote versus hybrid versus office-based is something that I've devoted a fair amount of time and energy to. Um to be honest, I'm not seeing a lot of serious work that's being done to really, you know, both by organizations and initiated by internal comms folk to really optimize the, the mix of employees who are based remotely versus um, hybridly versus officely. Uh, and I'm using those you know, warped terminology for a particular reason. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, organizations have a huge opportunity to reduce their overheads, increase employee satisfaction, and um, even the agility of their organizations by having the right people working off-site. But that much being said, you've got to spend time and money to make sure that these people build up personal relationships with people in the organ, you know, people who are either office-based or other people working remotely. I mean, you know, as a consultant, I work remotely all the time. I'm in Reykjavik. I have no Icelandic clients. There are very few Icelandic clients that see internal communication as being an issue, particularly because they tend to be very small. Biggest company here maybe has six, six 7,000 employees and very few have even half of that. You know, if a company of 1,000 people represents about 1% of the population of Reykjavik. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot of scope here for that. But the optimization of remote work really depends on getting people together in the right time so that they can build personal relationships that can then be sustained on a remote basis. There's a wonderful, there's, there's a woman by the name of Ilma Tiki, Lithuanian woman who built up a company called Mailer Light, which is a, a CRM company. And they're, they actually call themselves the remote company. But what they do is that they spend you know, maybe a week, a quarter, gathering all the employees for a so-called workation. And they develop relationships both in a work context and in a non-work context that allows them to work effectively with each other 
um, over the course of the year, even if they may be in countries ranging from Jordan to the United States. Of course, another thing you've uh, talked about quite a bit is uh, the IC index and uh, quantitative versus qualitative uh, research measures. And so I was interested to hear a bit about your views on that and what you kind of see as, I guess, maybe the strengths and weaknesses of each and why you particularly kind of push for the qualitative side of things. Well, I, I came down probably unduly harshly about the IC index because the IC index was not designed to be a you know, a strategy guide for internal communication. What it was designed to do was represent the views of employees in, in, a, in a different way from which they've been represented. And, you know, I want to walk back some of the harshness of my, of my comments. But that much being said, um, there are two things about the IC index that I still caution about. One is that when you're asking employees about what they prefer, they're going to bias their answers towards what they know. And when you're an innovator, when you're a technology company, when you're doing stuff that's outside of what people have heard of, you're, the representation of your view is going to be biased against you. And so, you know, as somebody who's an innovator and who works with comms technology companies, I saw a red flag there. So I threw that flag. Now, um, the second part of it is that by starting with qualitative analysis, particularly by starting with the most open-ended questions possible, like what are the top three priorities facing your organization and what are the most important things you're working on in your job, you then get the insights that allow you to ask the right questions mm -hmm. rather than just simply asking the questions that you think are important and coming up with a point of view or the answers that you think people have. Because when you start with a quantitative approach, you're baking in your own assumptions. When you start with a qualitative approach, you allow the organization's viewpoint to be reflected much more accurately in the questions you ask. Yeah. I think also one reason this interests me, of course, is that at universities, you get the same sort of thing of research being done. Uh, some people doing quantitative research and others qualitative and I think one thing I suppose that's happened over time is maybe there has been a bit more kind of uh, move towards being able to integrate the two to uh, kind of play on the strengths of each. And one thing I kind of feel maybe is that sometimes quantitative measures like that can be quite useful for uh, highlighting. It can sometimes throw up things, results you need to expect, which are then interesting to look into in more depth, perhaps in a qualitative way where you actually right. do. I mean, it's, it's what I call the chicken omelet issue, which is... Yeah. You know, there's a lot of discussion about which came first, the chicken or the egg. Yeah. The key thing is you want to have a chicken omelet, which has both elements in it, you know, ideally in the right, right balance to each other. But the key thing about whether you choose quantitative versus qualitative is what you're measuring. Mm -hmm. If you are measuring opinions rather than measuring facts, um, if you're asking people to rate, you know, if you're basing your, your quantitative numbers on ratings rather than specific factual stuff like reported, you know, incidents that people are reporting, you know, do they say they do certain things? Um, you know, basing a quantitative analysis only on ratings 
and solely on um, you know predetermined lists of of things that you could have a preference for. You know, you're baking some serious biases into this, and it's not it's not possible to cre create bias free measurements. We all have our biases. We hmm. all come from different places, um, but if you're actually trying to move something forward, you've got to be open to where people are rather than just simply where you think people are as the point of departure. Yeah. Were there things in the IC index that surprised you in a way that made you think you'd want to then sort of speak to people more to try and understand them in more depth maybe? Well, I think, I think the idea, you know, the, the primacy of email. You know, I work with an email vendor and I have no doubt that email is, is and will remain a critical part of internal communication. But people's preference for email may go up and down or may be lower mm -hmm. relative to new technologies and approaches or, you know, different types of email. You know, because there's actually different types of email out there that the IC index lumped all together. So there's random all staff emails, and then there are really coherent user-friendly like those provided by my partners at Workshop, which is a leading email vendor. Um, so they're all lumped into the same bucket. You know, the real, you know, one of the things that I think is a problem is that companies underinvest in internal comms technology. You know, they try to get it free or, or on the cheap. And um, the, uh, the implications that I thought for, saw from the IC index was that that was okay. And I had a commercial reason for disagreeing with it. One thing I noticed that you've written about online as well is about a difference between baseline measurements and benchmark measurements. So I was wondering if you could explain for the listeners uh, what the difference is and uh, why it's important to differentiate between these two. Yeah, I mean... Internal, you know, external benchmarking of internal communication, I think, is at least as negative of an idea as it is a positive. I mean, leaders like external benchmarking because they want a validation that they're doing things relatively well or that better yet that they're doing things better than their competition, which is why you have such a rely reliance, a continuing reliance on easily benchmarked employee engagement surveys, for instance. But the problem with benchmarking internal communication is that every organization's culture is fundamentally different, not just different, but fundamentally different. Hmm. You know, that, you know, even two law firms in the UK, they may recruit from different schools. They may have different demographics. They may have different percentages of private school versus state school folk. You know, they may have different practice areas. You know, they may have different forms of governance. So to say that, you know, firm A's employee engagement is 83% and firm B's is 80 doesn't make firm A a better firm than firm B. You know, firm B may have a culture where people are slightly more cynical. You know, that's not a measure of the effectiveness of your internal communication. Um, and what really gets me is when managers and, and IC people 
are punished for for employee engagement scores. I mean, you ask the question, you know, in the context of the history of internal communication in the UK in particular, there was a lot of promise around internal communication back in the late 90s. And then when the whole idea of employee engagement came up, the internal communication world basically sold its soul to the idea of employee engagement as being something that was benchmarkable, linear, and as a thing that could be measured by aggregating lots of different measures into a single almighty score. You know, probably the single worst thing that has happened to the internal communication profession has been the linkage between internal communication and the pursuit of ever higher employee engagement scores. One of the challenges that internal communication professionals face then can be a difference between the content that employees uh, want to receive, perhaps, and the ones that employees want to send out because they're trying to promote certain strategic priorities they've got. So how do internal communication professionals then kind of bridge this gap in terms of creating content that employees will engage with, but which still kind of serves the purpose that that, uh, the managers are looking for? Well, I... Let me draw a distinction between employee engagement scores and content engagement. Mm -hmm. There is a huge, you know, there is a huge terminology fail that happens when people start talking about employee engagement around, you know, to the extent that it's definable really is around satisfaction, commitment, discretion, you know, all of that stuff and content engagement, which is the ability, the willingness of people to read or listen to, or share about specific pieces of content. These are effectively two different concepts. Now, if you want to talk about what drives people to engage with specific pieces of content, then you've got to look at, okay, um, the combination of what are pe- what's people's attention threshold, what are their preferences, which the IC index does a fairly good job of representing, for instance, and what the needs of the organization are. This is why, you know, continually asking the question, what are the top three priorities of the organization is absolutely vital in terms of being able to create coherently present an internal communication strategy and deliver it. Because if you're not, if you as a communicator aren't aware of what people see as the top priorities, you don't know what to emphasize. So if, if people in the organization say your top three priorities are your comp and bend system, your, um, you know, the extent to which people are calling to complain and your company's priorities are financial performance and um, employee retention, you've got a disconnect. And, you know, for example, the comp and bend system, you know, some leaders may say, oh, we've got an 82% employee engagement score. We don't really need to rework the comp and bend system. But, you know, and I'm getting a little bit off track, but I'll bring it back on track. Um, that if you're relying on your 80% employee engagement score as an excuse for not acting on stuff that people are complaining about, what you realize, what you need to realize is that employee engagement scores like the Q surveys, like the Q12, are biased towards positive responses. 
when you're asking people, do your colleagues care about doing quality work? If you've got any psychological safety issues in your organization, people are not going to say three to that. They'll say seven. I like to say in internal communication, a seven is a polite three. Yeah. And when you come back to what do people engage with, they engage with stuff that they think is important. So what you need to do is A, be really clear about what you think is important as an organization, and B, connect it with what employees think is important. And that yeah. requires an understanding of both, not just simply a bunch of assumptions or a one-way view of this. Yeah. And one of the things we've been uh, investigating with our project is whether certain concepts like employee engagement have existed much longer than people assume. And like you say, it tends to get used now, I suppose, in a measurable kind of sense of uh, being able to measure engagement. Actually, we found, I think, back in the 1930s, magazines talking about the challenge of trying to engage employees. So in the more kind of general sense of talking about employee engagement, it seems that really quite a long time that this has been a discussion. So um, I was wondering, what, yeah, what your perspective has been on that, whether actually uh, a lot of these kind of concepts that tend to be thought of as quite new ones have actually existed uh, longer than people give acknowledgement to. Well, I draw a distinction between employee engagement as a single lin linear, measurable, scorable, mm. benchmarkable thing, and the desire to get employer to encourage employees to care, to pay attention, to um, to do more than they're asked for. That's been going on since there have been, you know, I mean, you know. Back in the pre-industrial age, you know, employers have been trying to motivate employees, sometimes through rewards, sometimes through punishment, what have you. That hasn't changed. But what I think has changed for the worse is the idea that all of the motivations of employees and all of the contributions and the drivers of contributions that employees make are all things that can be cooked down to a single score. Yeah, and I think that's what we're quite often interested in here is that sometimes these terms end up gaining a very specific meaning, like you're saying, in terms of like a way of measuring a certain score. And uh, I suppose what we're quite interested in is taking a step back and actually look at the bigger concepts and uh, how they have actually existed across a longer time. And like I say, I think, yeah, engagement has now gained a very specific meaning, but actually it's been taught. I, I, would, I would argue that engagement doesn't, employee engagement does not have a specific meaning. I actually collected mm. about 20 different definitions of employee engagement. Oh, really? Yeah. Ranging from discretionary effort to job satisfaction to willingness to um, linger on a piece of intranet contents page for a longer than expected period of time to, um, you know, in, in one company, an engagement was a meeting between employees and a senior leader. You know, what the reason why there's a problem with the miss or with the existence of multiple and conflicting definitions of employee engagement is that two people talking about employee engagement can be talking about two entirely different things. And this is one of the, you know, sometimes vendors say, 
you know, we can increase employee engagement by 20%. And they're saying we can increase employee engagement with content by 20%. But then they cite the Gallup surveys, which say an increase of 10% of employee engagement can create an increase of 2% in profitability. So what they're implying is you buy my intranet, you'll get an increase in profitability. There is no causal relationship between the two. Mm. And it's being marketed as such. And the problem for that is that internal comms people take the hit when that's not delivered. And then to move on to a slightly different topic, then one thing I noticed is that you have worked for Shell in the past, which is one of the case study organizations we're going to be looking at. So I was wondering if you did find that there was anything distinctive about internal comms and the way it worked in that particular organization then? I worked at Shell in 2007. It's 2023. I do not know how their culture has evolved over the last 16 years. Yeah. I mean, certainly certain things in the um, energy industry have evolved significantly. And certainly Shell's positions on certain issues have evolved significantly. And does this impact the culture? Undoubtedly, and I have no idea how. Given it's the history of internal comms, what the situation was like in 2007 would be just as much of interest to us. Well, I'm not going to talk about Shell specifically because there's, um, you know, I was under NDA when I was there. And indeed, one of the challenges of doing research in internal comms or demonstrating good good practice in internal comms is that most of the stuff that's done is under NDA. Yeah. Um, but I can talk a bit more generally about large companies at that time. And this was really before sustainability became an issue. It was before even culture was seen as you know, a driver or at least a facilitator of performance. And... You know, you had some companies with stronger value systems. You had some companies with more homogenous demographics. Um, You know, I worked in a big um, company that largely focused on food products. And you had a lot of people with, you know, you know, basically white people from the upper Midwest with agricultural backgrounds and they had a common way of seeing things. You know, it was a company that, you know, the desks were full at seven because farmers wake up early. And so there was, you know, there was that in their culture, you know, the, I mean, the biggest cultural difference between, between companies, something that's persisted over that time is between family owned and, and public companies. I've tended to do a lot better in public companies because public companies have a certain internal logic to the way they're organized and to what what they do. They drive short-term performance. You know that they're going to focus on that. And so when you're coming in as a communication person, you're oriented towards that. Um, In a family-owned company, um, the agendas are a lot more opaque. And your ability to support it. You know, some people, some internal comms folks love family-owned companies. Um, I found them difficult to work at. And, you know, and it doesn't really matter the size of the company. 
family-owned companies, they take a much longer view of things, which is good, but they often, you know, behave in an opaque manner because it's a family-owned company and you're not part of the family. And it'd be interesting to think a bit about some of the changes that have happened just over the last few decades, obviously digital communication and remote working. And in particular, I've seen that you've talked about the importance of face-to-face conversation and things like that. And how do you think this can be integrated into digital communication and remote working? Well, during COVID, I like to say that your your intranet, your, your internal comms platform was effectively the new corporate headquarters. And very few organizations actually treated it as such, which is, I think, one of the problems that we're having with the whole concept of remote work and why it's, um, you know, why it's still controversial. Um, I think the big, the big issues there are that when companies went remote during COVID, mm-hmm. they basically ported their cultures and practices online. They did not move towards remote, oriented ways of working. They took their brick and mortar ways of working. They moved it on to a, you know, you know, really the corporate headquarters existed, but not in the platform. It existed in everybody's head. Mm-hmm. And then you had the so-called great resignation where people pulled themselves out of the organizations and you ended up having a bunch of organizations that were left without key relationships that were assumed as part of this kind of virtual corporate headquarters of the hat that they're now blaming remote working on having screwed up, which is why they think bringing everybody back to the office is critical to being able to rebuild those relationships. That's not necessarily the case. Um, getting people together and you know getting them to build personal as well as professional relationships which you can do in really good offsite programs you can do in so-called workcations once people know each other and are used to working with each other particularly new people then it becomes very easy for them to work remotely because the relationships are there and they're existing in the person's head and that understanding is, is in his person's head so that work can be done effectively. Um, a lot of organizations are missing this opportunity. And by missing this opportunity, you know, they are foregoing the benefits of much lower overheads and access to a much wider talent pool at perhaps more affordable rates. So what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that internal communication professionals face uh, in today's world then? I, I see four huge challenges, one of which is um, credibility. Um, a related one is the deprofessionalization of the, you know, of the role of, of the internal communication role. The third is um over-reliance on inadequate technology. And the fourth is, um, you know, a lack of vision of, you know, for, you know, of internal communicators 
for the power that their roles actually have. So those, I think, are the four biggest challenges. You know, we can explore any one of them that you wish to explore. Well, it's interesting to hear you say deprofessionalization because I suppose uh, one thing we thought was with the kind of some of the qualifications that have been developed over the last few decades and I guess organizations like the Institute of Internal Communication in the UK, uh, we kind of thought there was being a shift maybe towards professionalization. But do you, so what makes you say sort of deprofessionalization in that case then? Um, decreasing salaries mm. and overspecified um, skills heavy job descriptions. You know, when you're seeking somebody who's self sufficient in graphic design, self sufficient in copywriting, self sufficient in um, project management, that person's going to be awfully busy doing a lot of doing. And it may take them years before they develop the, the awareness and the relationships to operate at more than a very detailed executional level. And so, you know, in trying to get one person to do three people's jobs, the sacrifice is that person doesn't have enough breathing room to learn about what's really going on in the organization. And so that person is seen as a support person doing stuff rather than a genuine partner who is being a leader within their field but actually being a leader with a small level L in the organization. And, you know, being, you know, trying to hire that person for 35,000 pounds a year to go toe to toe with C-level folks making 10 times that much money, you know, it's a really untenable situation, but I don't see it. I don't see it improving because, you can actually find people who are fairly skilled who will work for that money, but don't necessarily have the ambition to go toe to toe with a CFO. Oh yeah. That's interesting to hear then that perspective gives a different side to what some of the things that we've been thinking about in terms of what, where things are going at the moment. But I suppose the final thing that'd be interesting to ask about, which I usually ask people about then is that we're about the history of internal communication. Where do you see the future of internal communication being then over the upcoming years? Well, I, I see, I see the 80-20 rule at play. 80% of organizations will keep what doing what they're doing until what they're doing breaks down. Um, but 20% of the organizations will say, look, you know, internal communication is an absolutely piss cheap way to improve various different things that, that are going around in the organization. Mm -hmm. Some leaders will be smart enough to recognize that internal comms do, done right can be a driver of genuine competitive advantage, largely because so many com companies don't take the time and energy to do it properly. And so when these stories start to come out, you know, and this is the case with, with every discipline. At a certain point, organizations start to realize, hey, we've got to do something. Then they hire McK McKinsey or Accenture or BCG to tell them what to do. And they tell them to do the exact same things that they're telling everybody else what to do. Mm -hmm. At some point, one of these organizations is going to say, you know, you need to move your internal comments 
from a top-down distribution model to a relationship and network building model, which is what I've been advocating for the last really 10, 15 years since I wrote my book on the subject. Um, at some point, they'll get it. And then at that point, that 80 to 20 reverses. 80% of the companies will start doing the right things. And the other 20% will say, okay, how do we compete? You know, how do we use internal comms to compete even more creatively? Hmm. But we haven't hit that tipping point. We've been waiting for that for 20 years. That concludes this episode. Thank you to our guest, Mike Klein, for his valuable insights into the history, challenges and future of internal communication. And thank you, listeners, for joining us again. Come back next month when we will be speaking to Isabel Hull, the Research and Content Director at Academy, who will be talking to us about the insights from Academy's recent report, What's Changed About Change Communication. Until next time, why not visit our website, www.historyofinternalcoms.org, where you can view our latest blog post on how John Lewis institutionalised a culture of staff consultation. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to you joining us again in March.